0: Let's pray. Father, help us to hear your word, that your beautiful law would reflect the gospel, would speak toward your design for your created order, and for our specific lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In the first point this morning, I summarize what I think the seventh commandment is trying to teach us. It forbids distortions of God's design for marriage and the body. When God created the world, he designed it with specific purposes. We need to think of the creation account, not only something we debate regarding how it happened, but more importantly addressing who, what, and why. The Genesis one and two actually give us the who, the what, and the why about why God made the world. And what are we supposed to be living like in his creation? What's his design for the world? He designed it with specific purposes and for human flourishing. And I don't know if Christians use that language enough, at least at least, not in our churches. I hear that in books being written and articles being presented, but, but, but I don't hear that enough in, in, in our world. God designed the world for human flourishing, and when run according to design, it works beautifully. But if not, it fails. First year of marriage, in fact, it was first couple months of marriage. uh, I was gonna surprise my wife with making dinner. There were these pancakes. I mean, I'm not making anything fancy. We're talking eggs and pancakes, but it's the best I could do. And there's this recipe, family recipe in my wife's family, Grandma Ruth's pancakes. Our daughter Ruth is named after this grandma, so you know the pancakes gotta be good. And it's just, it's just a staple for any kind of special breakfast food. This is what her family would do and, and our family does to this day. But, but I was going to make that. And, and, and the, the recipe was for a, a portion of pancakes that would feed a large family. So I was trying to do a quarter of all the ingredients. And I did that perfect except for one, baking soda. So I had four times the amount. Yeah, Doug Carlson's like, I'm never eating at his house again. I had four times the amount of baking soda in these pancakes. But the, it didn't, it didn't, like, it's not like it showed itself, like it looked like beautiful pancakes. So she comes in, the table, we've been married two, three months maybe. This is fall of 1999. Pancakes look beautiful, there's scrambled eggs, there's orange juice, we're sitting at this table, so excited, I just jumped up to grab something else, sit down, she's taking her first bite of pancake, and she's got this like really awkward look on her face. And I'm like, what's wrong? And she's like, why don't you just take a bite of the pancakes? <laughs> That's when we discovered through a process of elimination oh, yeah, baking soda, one quarter. I did four times. See, God's design is meant like a recipe so that when you do it according to plan, there is human flourishing. And it can even look good like the pancakes. Except they're not edible. Since the third chapter in the Bible, what Genesis 3, what we kind of summarize as the fall, when humanity decided to go a different way, the world has tried to adjust God's design. And again, we don't need to talk about the world as if, again, that us versus them actually is probably unhelpful. We need to see how we've done that. We literally just took communion to confess before a holy God. That is our propensity too. But what's interesting, after these two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, where God is giving the, the who, the what, and the why of this beautiful creation, that he seven times, which is Bible's way of underlining, circling, and, and italicizing, Seven times he says good, with the seventh being very good. The very first verse in Genesis 3, there's already a distortion. And guess who it is? It's a guy named Satan. And he addresses the first of humanity. And these are Satan's first words as recorded in Scripture. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? notice the framing. Did he actually say? Like when we came home once when our kids for an hour and a half were by themselves, or too older, were oldest, old enough, and a big debate over how much ice cream. Did mom actually say we couldn't have ice cream? That's the very first statement. The very first question Satan does is try to challenge the design. And the reality is, is that is exactly the propensity of humanity. Did the recipe actually say one quarter baking soda? Was there be any question about that? Well, now I'll turn to the topic of the mar- of marriage, the body, family. Did God actually say that marriage is supposed to be this way or that way? Did He? The seventh commandment is forbidding abuse of God's image. We are His, made in his image. Male and female are to function according to his design. In fact, if we were to kind of truncate it down, we would have to say that every commandment, especially the last six, which are the horizontal commandments, the last six commandments are all still flowing from those first four commandments regarding the who and the how of God. Who is God and how is he to be rightly worshipped? Every commandment will fit those. So here's where it comes. Not only the seventh commandment, but the Bible as a whole demands that men and women channel all their desire for physical intimacy and expression into a single narrow path, a lifelong commitment to marriage between a man and a woman. That is what the Bible teaches about God's design for the created world. That is what human flourishing flows from. That is the expectation and the command here in this seventh commandment. That is God's design. It is his intention for us to follow and to obey. In fact, you even think about, I think, we, I think we interpret this commandment almost individually, like my marriage, and there's truth in that, right? Or my expression of physical intimacy, fair enough. But think about this. This commandment is one of the six commandments that are the love your neighbor. The first four are vertical, love God. The last six are horizontal, love neighbor. We often take this as personally about us, but actually when you're loving your wife or husband well, You are loving your neighbor because you're not loving one of them. When you're loving your wife or husband well, you're loving your neighbor because your children are blessed by God's design for the family and for human flourishing. So a faithful marriage and a commitment to marriage is actually a horizontal blessing That all of your children and maybe your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and relatives and extended family and people in the community are blessed because you have kept in place what God called very good. And you didn't ask the question, did God really say? You didn't ask that. You, You slapped that right when it was posed. Now, this is challenging in a day when freedom extends beyond the expression to the body itself. But even even before we go into some kind of culture war analysis, I worry that we can be too comfortable simplifying sin with just political categories. We aren't good at listening to it for ourselves. Especially when we know that sin, when properly defined, can be expressed as total depravity, which means... All of us are not just experiencing the effects of sin, but ourselves struggle to contain the sinfulness of our own condition. We should know then that physical intimacy and its desires, marriage, and the human body will reflect that depravity, not just out there, but even in here. We all need to deal with this reality. That is too many Christians. If I'm saying it more bluntly, too many Christians love to rebuke the LGBTQ plus movement or something related to it, while secretly dishonoring God with their own sexual sin. When you listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew five, he's talking to the church. Now, before I read it, Marshall read it. Didn't get the preface. That I will. Those last, the last half of what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 27 to 30 is pretty harsh, just, a, just kind of a rule of thumb. Jesus, sometimes one of his teaching techniques was to use what's called hyperbole. So extend something out graphically so as to, number one, emphasize its importance and kind of threaten you with the consequences of the reality. But listen to what Jesus says. Remember what he does on the Sermon on the Mount where this comes from. He's taking the Ten Commandments and he's saying, you've heard it was said, and he sees ways that that, that maybe religious leaders apply it in a way that simplifies it or dilutes it in a way. And then he goes, but I say to you, and when he says that, he's showing what a proper application looks like. So verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And he brings heat to that in verses 29 through 30. Man, kind of like last week, you're thinking, great, don't murder, perfect, haven't done that in weeks. This will be an easy sermon. And then you find out, whoa, you feel that hate in you? feel that desire for revenge? You feel that? Well, that's that commandment. Or this one. You feel those desires of physical expression, thoughts, the roaming eyes? That's talking about the seventh commandment. We have been in a Christian age that has become experts at critiquing our culture, and yet when you actually look at the Bible, it spends more time actually speaking to the church. When Jesus was ministering, he actually didn't go to the citadel and rip on Roman soldiers for all their paganism. You didn't see Jesus spending a lot of time talking to the governor, or the political Roman leaders telling them how they're all going to be condemned by God. He went to the church, the religious leaders, and he told them, this is God's will for your life. So when you're reading Matthew 5, he's not just talking to people in Hollywood or whatever kind of character you and I want to raise so that we can point our wrath at them and not look in the mirror. He's actually talking to the church. He's talking to his disciples. This is a sermon. Who listens to sermons? Christians do. The Sermon on the Mount. But, but more proof of that is 1 Peter four seventeen. Here's the context of 1 Peter 4. I'll read the verse in a minute, but here's the context. Peter's talking about suffering as a Christian. He's like, if you're suffering because you stole something, that's not Christian persecution. If you suffer because uh, you killed somebody, that's not Christian persecution. Or if you suffer because you're just a jerk, that's not Christian persecution. You're just a jerk. True suffering is because of the gospel. Man, I think in our day and age, we need to redefine what Christian suffering is. But then he says this. We almost miss it in 1 Peter 4. He says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And you, you might be like, yeah, yeah, get those people out there. Get the world judgment. And you go, what, what did he just say? Did he say judgment begins with the people of God? It means what God is going to do, he will ultimately redeem all creation and he will judge the world. He is the judge of the living and the dead. But do you know what he, like a, like a father who disciplines his children, Hebrews 12, you know what he graciously does? He will deal with the, the, those or them out there, but he starts with us because he loves us and he died for us and he wants to purge from us any kind of thing that would hinder not only our relationship with him, but even human flourishing. So as disciples of Jesus, let us be the first, brothers and sisters, to talk about our marriage struggles before we talk about public policy. Let us be the first to confess sexual deviancy before we point out the deviancy in culture. Let our church first deal with sexual sin in our own congregation before we attack those on the outside. Because if the seventh commandment forbids distortions of God's design for marriage in the body, then God wants us to deal with that first and foremost. Our bodies. Our desires and expressions for intimacy and our marriages belong to God, and he will hold us accountable that we submit them to him. And what does that look like positively? The seventh commandment demands, then, that Christians pursue practices that protect the sacredness of marriage and intimacy. And one thing to note in the Bible, but I'll show you this even in later interpretations, is that the seventh commandment makes clear that marriage is what God intends to help us express and contain our physical intimacy. Marriage is like the home for physical intimacy. Like your home, you live there. You can repaint the walls. You can do what you need to do in your house. But just because you are not of eggs, you probably don't just walk to your neighbor and just like start breaking through the screen window because you need to borrow some eggs. That's not your house. So don't go in that house. You knock on the door, you call, you got any eggs I can borrow? I need some milk. I need some flour. I need some more baking soda for pancakes, whatever it is. But you're going to ask because that's not your house. Your house is your house. And that's where you live. So the Bible will define that we express physical intimacy in the house of a marriage. That's just... Call that a rule of thumb, but should, there's the fence. So every other situation outside of the house of, of marital intimacy then needs to fit that rule. Proof of that is how the Heidelberg Catechism explains the Seventh Commandment. Look at question 108. What does the Seventh Commandment teach us? That God condemns all unchastity, which I define as distortion of God's design. And that therefore we should thoroughly detest it and live decent and chaste lives, comma, notice this, I even underlined it for you, within or outside of the holy state of marriage. Like that is where, that's the house in which our intimacy lives, I can think of it not just as my own purity or my own integrity or my own faithfulness. That's part of it. That is a specific way that you love your neighbor and how your children are blessed and how human flourishing exists. This commandment is not just defining our marriage but protecting the marriage of others. And this commandment is even lifting up the beauty of marital intimacy. Marriage is sacred. It's a covenant. It reflects our covenant with Christ. It, re- re- prote- it protects our children and our grandchildren. It protects our neighbors. Now, we live in a culture that is frequently and even more frequently dealing with divorce, and there's lots of variables for that. And one kind of, kind of way to think about this at least in our regard, I think, is to think about the way that how divorce is viewed by the church. I'll tell you what, man, we are masters at letting some sins be okay and choosing other sins, and those are the ones we're going to point on. Like we, just, we, we, we rarely, rarely, rarely get accusatory about materialism because we're just, to be frank, we're probably all pretty materialistic. We, that, that's okay. But men, sexual deviancy, you're in trouble will call you out. Marital issues will call you out. Those are the ones that we choose to kind of guard. The other ones, that's, that's an okay sin. That's an, oh, anger, you're good. You're good. Be angry about that. Yeah, don't talk to your friend anymore. Beautiful. But this kind of a sin, we're coming for that one. But I think one that we need to deal with as Christians is the issue of divorce. Think of divorce like a cancer. There's lots of reasons for cancer there can be genetic reasons, there can be lifestyle reasons, but, we, but, but usually when somebody gets cancer, our response is actually can be quite gracious. I, I don't think I've ever heard somebody say, are, are you eating gluten? Because you probably got it from gluten. I mean, you, you just don't hear that. Like, you, would, you, you laugh because you're like, who would ever say that? Do you exercise enough? I bet you don't. Like, like the disciples with the blind man, hey, did, did that guy sin or is his parents? Like we, we, we treat cancer with mercy and empathy. So you've got an epidemic, pandemic of divorce ravaging our culture. What's the response look like? Again, based on God's design, if marriage is how human flourishment thrives, what do you think a culture of divorce will be experiencing? The church must provide support and care for adults and children who have tasted the pain of divorce. And I worry that Christians prefer to look down upon divorcees rather than lift up those individuals and their children. We've got this amazing habit of kind of claiming for ourselves Christ's righteousness. I remember my oldest son, when he was like three, I had to move a box and he wanted to help me. And I'm like, dude, the box is bigger than you are. Now, at this stage, he could move about six of those boxes, but at that stage, he was a little guy. So I'm lifting the box. He's awkwardly, and and, and making it more difficult, standing in my way as I'm trying to carry this box, but I moved the box, put it in the back of the car, wherever I was putting it, and I just remember we went into the house, and and my son says, Mom, Dad, and I moved the box. Now, I'm thinking to myself, uh, technically, you just got in the way. You really didn't lift more than a couple pounds of that, but notice how he instinctively claimed like he was moving the box. So then you and I become Christians. How much of that did you do? Like how much of the box of your sin did you carry? And yet you can all of a sudden, supposedly in a stage of spiritual maturity, be kind of claiming, I'm good. I've been following Jesus for a long time. I've got this figured out. He's lucky to have me. I'm carrying my fair share of that cross. Are you? Where were you when? You were dead in your sin in a tomb like Lazarus, wrapped in about 100 pounds of death clothes. Were you wiggling to set yourself free, or did Jesus call into the tomb and say, get up? We've got to be careful of our self-righteousness because to be completely honest with you, if Jesus were to come into our churches like he did in the first century, his first sermon would not be on culture war because he already to- thinks you know Genesis 3. What he would do is you look into your hearts and say, are you honoring the seventh commandment with your eyes in your marriages, with your bodies? And if marriage is how we negotiate physical intimacy, then any Intimate expression or action outside the marriage covenant is forbidden and to be guarded against. Look at Heidelberg Catechism 109. Does God in this commandment forbid only such scandalous sins as adultery? The answer is no. And look at how they frame it. We are temples of the Holy Spirit, body and soul. I like how they add the body in there. Our, our age needs to remember that more. And God wants both to be kept clean and holy. That is why God forbids all unchaste actions. And then he lists lists them. Looks, talk, thoughts, or desires, or whatever may incite someone to them. Boy, that's just kind of following what Jesus said in Matthew 5. It's not just what you do with your hands. It's what you do with your head and your heart. Finally, the seventh commandment shepherds us to see how our commitment to God's design for marriage and intimate relationships is a reflection of Christ and the gospel. Remember what these commandments do? Three things. You'll get this eventually. If you haven't heard me say it already several times, every commandment tells us something about God's character and nature. Secondly, every commandment reveals something about the tendency of the human heart and the human condition. So like, a, like an EKG, it reveals our disordered love's. And desires and third, every single commandment written in the singular is shown to be connected to the personal work of Jesus Christ. The theme of marriage in the Bible is the most prominent metaphor used to describe the relationship between humanity and God. It's almost as if God not, didn't take marriage to talk about Christ in the church, He took Christ in the church to talk about marriage, like tracing, like your kids or something, grandkids might do. He literally took The image in Revelation of Christ in the church, and then he traced biblical marriage between men and women. He says, okay, live that out. No other relationship known to humans is as intimate and special as that between a husband and a wife. God allowed all the desires we experience and the relational needs we have to be so clear to us in human relationships like marriage that we could understand how much the Father loves us and the kind of faithfulness he has to us and we should have to him. Yet we've been unfaithful. Old Testament talks over and over again. It uses the phrase adultery to talk about God's people's relationship to him. Yet guess who didn't divorce us? Jesus didn't. He's a marriage redeemer. The gospel is dependent on Jesus' faithfulness to us. He never sinned. He honored God's design perfectly unlike us. He could have divorced us, but he did not. In response then, we, the bride of Christ, the church, strive in every way to be faithful to him as he has already been to us. He is faithful to us, so we strive to be faithful to him. And that faithfulness includes how we treat the covenant of marriage. So what does obeying the seventh commandment look like? Three things as we close. First, according to this commandment, you must submit your body to God. We we don't like the word submit anyway, but that's, that's a good one to use. These are commandments, not suggestions. Your body is the Lord's. The Heidelberg Catechism would say that your body, borrowing from Corinthians, is a temple that we are to align in faithfulness and submission to God. God is the one who authored us, and we should complete his intentions that he wants us to live out. What's that mean? It means guard your actions, guard your eyes, guard your senses. Second, submit your desires to God. Jesus was well aware that our distorted loves, our desires would be a constant battle. He knew that. That, That's why when talking about the sixth commandment, he's not just worried about if you killed a guy or not, but if you hated him. He's getting to the area of desire. The seventh commandment, is not just what you do physical ways. It's even what you do at the level of desire with your mind. Let your discipleship include your thoughts your habits, your private practices, honor the Lord. Guard your conversations with friends, even as as Heidelberg Catechism 138 would say, guard even what friends you perennially spend time with that will pull you in a direction that dishonors God's desire for things. I can imagine it can be very hard in athletic locker rooms or big warehouses at break time in in places of employment, to be above reproach and to seek to think about the things that God would honor. I would even encourage you to guard your brothers and sisters in Christ and use tools that help you. Every Sunday morning, even before I wake up, I get an email from a device that we have on all our technology called Covenant Eyes. And all three of my kids my family, you know, what they looked up, if it was birds or trucks or something for school homework that gets flagged, it gets sent to me. Mine gets sent to my wife. And every single Sunday, I get, a, I get an email from Covenant Eyes for my old college roommate, who's my age and unmarried and lives in another state. And for years now, every Sunday, I get his. And if there's something that looks a little fishy, I give him a call. And a couple times he said, I thought you'd be calling me. And he's my brother. He's my brother. he asked me to represent him and care for him in that way. And that's what I do. And I have for years. I can't imagine walking through this world without having seatbelts and railings and canes and walkers and wheelchairs and yet with... Something so devastating and something so strongly rebuked by Jesus in Matthew 5 to think that we can fight it alone is naivety at best. Stupidity is probably what it is. Submit your body, submit your desires, submit your marriages. Marriage is the house in which, by God's design for human flourishing, physical intimacy happens. And that means something different for every stage of life. If you're married, it means one thing. If you're married and struggling, that means something else. If you're divorced, that means something. If you're widowed, that means something. If you're single, that means something. And we don't have time, even though we need to in some capacities or in certain venues, to work through all of that as a church family. So when you're small groups, With your with your discipling mentor or mentee and close Christian relationships, flesh this out. What's it look like to be 21 and obey the seventh commandment? What's it look like to be 71 and obey the seventh commandment? What's it look like in my particular stage of life? We need to submit that to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we crave the kind of human flourishing that you intended for this very good creation. And we realize that our body and soul are your temple. And that by your grace, as a father who loves his children would do, you are already now trying to purge from our lives individually and even corporately as a church the impurity that distorts your design for marriage, for our bodies. Basically, Father, sins against the seventh commandment. Help us to magnify the sacredness of marriage and to honor your created design for our bodies. Father, help us to be warriors for the seventh commandment before we go to battle with some kind of cultural issue. Help us to realize that sometimes we're more influenced by the questions Satan taught us to say, did God actually say, rather than with the straightforward commandment as you've given to us. So Father, help us as we try to obey the seventh commandment, whether we are 21 or 71, whether we are married or divorced. Well, all those struggles, may we house, for love of neighbor and even a love of God, expressions of intimacy in the house of marriage. Help us to uphold that covenant, whether we are in it or outside of it, and give us wisdom as we navigate our current situation. Thank you, Father, that the same spirit that minister to us for communion just a few minutes ago, even now, takes your word and our situation and applies it to our life. I pray that you do that for all of us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.